Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you're listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Somia Venkatesan, who is the founder of Kachil Kitchen, which is an enterprise focused on making meatless, plant-based options interesting with the intent to bring back and celebrate biodiverse, sustainable and locally grown ingredients to the table. In the following conversation, Samia shares about why she thinks Singaporeans struggle with vegetarian cooking and what we can all learn from India to make vegetables delicious. I would love to know what your story was, you know, growing up in India as a vegetarian. Um, so I was born in Bangalore, but I grew up in New Delhi. That's where my parents lived. Um, my father was an economist. Uh, and therefore he had to work with the Indian government um, and therefore we kind of lived most of my childhood um, in New Delhi. Um, that said, uh, you know, because of the kind of uh, nature of the job that he did as an economist, we did travel quite often across India and have lived in the north, south, east and west. So I must say that I have been lucky enough to have been exposed to, um, you know, not just one genre of like uh, cuisines in one like particular state or anything of that sort, but at least be able to appreciate the nuances between North, South, East and West. Say, for example, like something like uh, a very spicy dish would not become as popular in, let's say, uh, you know, places or geographies where people are not used to certain spices or not used to having that much of uh, heat in their dishes. Right. So, uh, I think in, in that same kind of uh, spirit, now what we also need to understand is that when these cuisines kind of travel to different geographies, they were influenced by their local cuisines as well. And that's what the case in scenario when you see a lot of the Indian dishes in Malaysia and in Singapore, uh, you know, they are heavily influenced by Malay cuisine, by Peranakan, by Chinese, etc. And you, therefore, you see an amalgamation and a completely new genre of like, you know, cuisines of India, which I think is great in its own self. Uh, but that said, it should not be uh, seen as the only definition of a particular dish or, uh, or a cuisine from India, because there is definitely so much more. One uh, example that I'd like to state is when I had come to Singapore, I saw that people use the word parota or parata, uh, very synonymous to, uh, you know, a parata. And they thought that that's what is eaten across India. Uh, so I did when I when I was doing a few classes at farms, which is where I was teaching, which is a lifestyle education place at, um, in Singapore. So where I was teaching there, then I, I had to explain to people that, Parota or parata is actually uh, a flatbread which can be stuffed or not, but it is not necessary that it is done in the typical manner that it's done in Singapore. Um, that's more, um, you know, uh, a, a, a style of a Malabar parata that comes from the Malabar coast, whereas, uh, you know, the parathas which are eaten in the northern India are usually and always, in fact, made with whole wheat. Um, so these are some of the smaller things that, you know, usually come as a surprise uh, to a lot of people. And people do end up thinking that, you know, a butter masala, uh, a dosa in idli, uh, a paratha, uh, and you're pretty much done with Indian cuisines, you know. <laughs> but that's not the case scenario. There's just 
there's, there's so much over there that uh, it's impossible to cover it even if you were to enlist all the cuisines of India. Do you feel like Indian cuisine is misunderstood in any way? Like does anything about the way that it's being represented makes you upset? No, I wouldn't say that. I think it largely depends on people's interpretation um, on how they would like to interpret a, interpret a dish. Uh, there are a lot of chefs who have a modern interpretation of any specific dish. Uh, and that's perfectly fine because it's something like, um, it's like a painting as to like what, how you want to kind of paint your canvas, which is perfectly fine. Um, I think what can become objectionable is when you go out and uh, make it out to be a dish and have the fundamentals wrong, which I don't think happens in most case scenarios. Um, uh, but that, that there is definitely a need for more education, uh, a need for people to understand more about uh, different cuisines, because India is a very large country. And sometimes it's very difficult for people to kind of uh, realize that, you know, they can be that many cuisines in a country. Uh, and it's quite diverse as well, even from, and, and that's because of the geography, right? From the kind of oils that they use for the basic cooking of the dish to the spices that they use. Because most often the misnomer is that people think that across India, people just use spices and that's about it. Yeah, <laughs> right? that's but that's not the case scenario. There is a reason why a specific spice or a specific method of cooking or a specific oil is used in this dish. and that you know, kind of defines it. So I think that understanding uh, or that education is, is important. Um, and that gives us, like people like you and me, a bigger role to play where we can actually storytell and bring about that knowledge across to different geographies, including Singapore. So when you first arrived in Singapore, you know, you talked about how there are so many influences like the Malay influence, the Chinese influence and the Peranakan influence. Um, how do you think that really impacted the way that you cooked or approached this cuisine that you're so familiar with? Actually, that's a lovely question. It did change my, my view of how I approached a dish. Uh, so, I mean, before MasterChef, I would just like attempt cooking different dishes. I would just typically look at a recipe, maybe do a little bit more research on how, what are the important things to it and then just make the recipe. But after MasterChef, when I decided to make this my full-time career, I started looking at the nuances of like cooking techniques and how it really affects dishes and, you know, different ingredients and things like that. So uh, also MasterChef gave me the appreciation on things like plating, like textures, etc. Uh, that again got like, you know, influenced by the cooking methods and techniques that you would use on a particular dish. So to give you a perfect example is uh, we would make something called as a cabbage puriel or a, a ghost puriel. Okay, it's basically a, a very light saute of cabbage with coconut and a little bit of mustard seeds, you know, curry leaves and a tempering of like a little bit of chili. That's it. Okay. It's a very, very simple dish. Um, and, uh, you know, I would always make it at home. It was always made in India in a way where actually the cabbage kind of is dead and gone. All right. It's almost like watery and it looks really sad on a plate. And then when I, when I came to Singapore and I started seeing how the chefs or the Chinese chefs actually use you know, high flame uh, cooking method for vegetables to kind of make sure that the crunchiness is there and the taste of the vegetable is inherently there. 
while it is cooked. That kind of influence saying that, all right, I perhaps should apply this technique to this particular dish. And in fact, that became a dish that became extremely popular when I taught at farms. And everybody was like, I mean, this is, this is amazing. And it was put together in like less than five to 10 minutes. But that is an example of like how when you travel to different countries, live in different countries, make different countries your home, you, get, you also get influenced and appreciate uh, how you can actually borrow all these into your you know, mainstream cuisine and make it a little bit better. Because I do feel that uh, in India, you, you know, sometimes the vegetables, either there's a lot of pressure cooking that happens at home, um, or even if it's at restaurants, it's so much of mass cooking that it kind of kills the vegetables. So I think there are things that we can learn from other, you know, cuisines and, you know, cooking techniques as well. Definitely. I feel like the more I cook, the, the more I see that some cuisines are uh, so good at some things and like we can mix and match the different techniques to make our dishes better. Um, I've been trying to eat more vegetables and less meat in general for the past couple of years and I realized that tempering is such a good technique uh, from Indian cuisine that makes vegetables so delicious and I was wondering if you have any other cooking techniques to share about how vegetables can be made into something delicious. So when you look at tempering, right, um, a lot of dishes uh, will, and I'm talking about Indian cuisines right now, a lot of dishes will have a starting tempering and an ending tempering, all right? Um, and there is tempering that happens in the middle of the cooking as well. I think what's the most important aspect of this is blooming your spices very well, whether it is, um, you know, hard spices or it is uh, something that is powdered spices both case scenarios I think it's very important to understand how to bloom it and therefore temperature plays a very very critical role now in India the gas burners are much much smaller all right so you typically you do your tempering at the highest all right uh, but here in Singapore the gas burners because you know you do have like high flame cooking are much larger so you would look at somewhere between mid to high all right uh, and um, what you would need to do is like the, the, the starting tempering actually will create the foundation of flavor for the dish. The middle tempering actually builds the dish. All right. It could even be the body. And usually the middle tempering is powder because at that point in time, you would have so many things on your, um, uh, you know, what do you say, your pan or whatever you're cooking in that you would uh, not be able to give individual attention and oil to a particular spice because most spices are in fact all spices are uh, oil soluble they're not water soluble so it's very important that they are you know affected by oil or some fat medium for it to release its flavor so a middle tempering will actually give a little bit of body and usually it would be powdered spices like your coriander your cumin your even whatever other right and then your end tempering is what will give you the punch when you actually open the dish and you're introduced to your dish. So they all have a very, very different function and they all uh, play an extremely different role in the dish. So you can make an extremely simple dish, um, even with one tempering. Um, you can also make a dish that is interesting and complex with three kinds of tempering. But these are all techniques that once you understand and learn, 
um, um, and largely by modulation of fat, by modulation of temperature, etc., that you can make your dish very, very interesting. And be it vegetables or meat, it really, really doesn't matter then. Yeah. And do you think um, that to make vegetables really delicious, we have to embrace the use of fat? Because I know a lot of people who are like, you know, really health conscious when, when they are trying to eat more vegetables, they shun away from the, from the oil and the fat. Um, but, you know, Indian cooking really embraces this as an ingredient, as a medium to release flavors from your spices. Um, so do you feel that there has to be a shift in perspective? Um, yes and no. If you're looking to have a steamed broccoli, then go ahead and have, have a steamed broccoli, right? Uh, if you want to make it a little bit more interesting, you can add an end tarka to your steamed broccoli. Um, if you, um, say for example, want to um, make it more interesting, then you can play around with different mediums of fat. Say for example, I think, uh, you know, and what I keep doing in my classes and whatever, you know, shows that I do, is introduce a lot of different oil mediums to people. Say, for example, the mustard oil. Instead of, you know, having a vinaigrette, which is um, just your olive oil, you can consider having mustard oil. It's extremely pungent. In that case scenario, you don't have to have your Dijon, right? Uh, similarly, your coconut oil can give very nice nutty flavors as well. Your sesame oil, your gingerly oil, which is you know, which is what prim primarily predominantly used in India. And that's because of the milling process that they use, that it's slightly different. And in terms of flavor also, it's very different. But used in a lot of dose and all that stuff. So that is, again, a different flavor that you can use. Groundnut oil. There's so many different oils that, you know, as a medium that you can use for flavor, not just necessarily fat, uh, to make your dish more interesting. So it really is up to you. You can have a steamed vegetable. There is no harm to it. But if you want to make it interesting, you can, of course, use oil mediums to make it a little bit more interesting. Yeah, I find that so interesting because a lot of um, cuisines in the world, they just oh, mostly one type of oil, right? Whether it's regular oil or whether it's olive oil. So what about meat substitutes? I mean, what kind of meat substitutes are common in India? Um, in fact, uh, growing up, I've always been a vegetarian and we've never had any meat substitute at home we've never felt the need for and even medically i mean there has been no need for me to even eat any meat you know as in there has never been any protein deficiency or anything of that sort that really mandates to have need to have any meat uh, in india if you see um if you typically look at households um and that has been a changing statement because when i was growing up and I'm giving my age, I'm like around 40, so around, top four, around like 30, 40 years back. Um, most people would eat uh, vegetable-oriented dishes throughout the week. And only during Saturdays and Sundays, they would have meat. Mm -hmm. And these are people who are people who are eating meat. And therefore, you know, you have a lot of people when they travel from India, they say that they eat meat, but they can't eat that much of meat. Like every day they can't have like three dishes of meat or they can't even have like one dish uh, a day, right? If you go down to Bengal or like um, uh, if you go down to the eastern part of India where um, there's a predominant like coastal area, they do have fish every single day. Um, if you come down to the central part of India, it's predominantly vegetarian. Um, uh, and this is more peninsular. When you go down to uh, the West, they do have a little bit of chicken, a little bit of fish. 
Um, but again, there is a bigger population of vegetarian. If you go down south, it's quite a mixed, but it's not It's not a 50-50. Um, there are places where it's predominantly more people eating meat and lesser people eating vegetarian. Uh, if you go up north, again, they eat mostly chicken or poultry because, you know, it's landlocked and there's no sea um, and very little fish. But if you look at it overall, there's minimalistic pork, which is coming through the Portuguese influence. Um, a lot of chicken that's eaten by Mughlai as well as um, other cuisines in the South influence. A lot of fish because we do have a, you know, nice coastal, uh, our entire South is completely a coastal line. Um, so um, I wouldn't say that, you know, in vegetarian households or in households when they're eating dishes that don't have meat, they really look for a meat alternative because that's not the case scenario at all. Mm -hmm. um, at most, I know that, you know, jackfruit used to be considered as a poor man's meat in certain locations for certain festivals when then, you know, they would feel that they should have a meat dish or like it's like a wedding or something like that. And they wanted to have something very um, meaty or like grand and they couldn't afford it. But it's really not a mandate across India. That's why um, a, a meat substitute is something that is still quite alien in most uh, Indian homes. Uh, though I must say that plant-based meat is gaining popularity in India as well, just like worldwide. But I think that's a completely different segment. Um, plant-based meat is really towards flexitarians or people who are accustomed eating meat and want that meat-like bite in a dish that is does not have meat. So it's a very, very different market segment. But people who are like, you know, have been predominantly vegetarian really don't have uh, meat substitutes on the tables. Mm -hmm. What about soya chunks? Is, is that something that is a new thing or have, have uh, Indians been using it in their kitchens for a long time? Soya chops, soya chunks, soya nuggets and soya, um, uh, you know, the granules. These are four things that uh, I, I have, have been there for years now. Um, but it's not been seen as a meat substitute dish. It's just seen as one other ingredient that really comes onto the dish. It's not like today there's no meat, so I'm going to make a soya, soya chop or I'm going to be making a soya chunk or a soya granule. It's never been like that. It's been like today I made a soya chop dish. So uh, that's what I'm saying. Like the way that the, the, the approach to these ingredients have been that it's just another ingredient, just another dish, but not necessarily on the table because there's no meat. Mm. So what do you think is the difference between your approach to vegetarianism and what is um, kind of advocated from the West? Um, so because I run this enterprise called Kirchil Kitchen and uh, it's predominantly has like three, three things that I champion with it is one is plant-based meatless. The other thing that I do is local ingredients of Singapore. And I work with a lot of local farmers here. And the third thing is sustainability because I do know that when you're looking at plant-based meatless, it's very important to look at sustainability and diversity because that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand and look at it in a very myopic fashion. It's very important to address the entire uh, gamut of the whole thing. It is interesting to see that there is a lot of interest, a lot of development and improvements um, in the kind of produce that's grown in Singapore now.
Yeah. Are you surprised that uh, vegetarianism has really taken off and everyone is looking to eat more vegetables or like adopt a more plant-forward diet? Yes, I must say that like 10 years back in Singapore, I would rarely find a restaurant which would have like a full-fledged like a vegetarian menu. But now that's become kind of the mandate because people are demanding for these kind of menus and dishes. Uh, in fact, because I do a lot of menu consulting, I do get a lot of inquiries on uh, restaurants wanting to do uh, vegetarian dishes and bring it about in their, in their menus for a lot of their clients. Um, the understanding about like vegetarianism vis-a-vis plant-based, etc. is still... Com- is still I think not very clear with uh, some people still in the industry. So it really helps that, you know, I can create this kind of dishes for, uh, you know, restaurants uh, and chefs in Singapore. Yeah. Do you feel that there is a stereotype around vegetarian cooking um, in that there has to be a compromise, that it is not as tasty as food made with meat? Because when I was working as a chef, every time we had a vegetarian customer or vegan customer come in, like all the chefs would be like shaking their heads. (laughs) It still happens, okay? Uh, But that said, I think um, the interesting thing is 10 years back, uh, the the chefs in Singapore were not very well equipped with a lot of things that are there available now uh, in terms of like plant-based meats and all that's all those that entire category and that all all those products over there and that has actually helped a lot of chefs because you worked in Singapore you know the size of the kitchens that are there here you know and you know the labor problems so it's not easy to uh, have a dish which is full of vegetables it doesn't work out from a menu perspective it doesn't work out from a logistic you know storage perspective from a supply perspective from so you can't have envisage a dish like that so in those kind of restaurants it really helps that you know if they have like a, a, a chicken dish then they quickly just take the chicken out and they replace it with um, a plant-based chicken so it's definitely become easier for chefs but Yes, it's still uh, something that, you know, chefs would be like, oh, my God, why, 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 <laughs> why should this happen to me? Um, but I also think that uh, there is a gradual shift where people are realizing that they want to have something healthy. So what I foresee in the next few years is people not just wanting to have a plant-based meat, but to have more encompassing dish. Uh, 10 years back, it used to be like, you know, there would be like, say, for example, a dish with prawns and they would take out the prawn and call it vegetarian. From that there till now where um, they are able to at least envisage the whole dish, you know, and replace the, just the meat with a plant-based meat, I think is a, is a good, um, good uh, progression. But what I would like to see uh, in the next few years in not, is not just like plant-based meat, but also envisaging a dish from the very beginning to be a vegetarian dish, which heroes a lot of things, uh, not necessarily only plant-based meat. Um, but it's so delicious that irrespective of you and your, your dietary you know, constraints, you just go and you say, I want to eat this. Yes, I love that so much because, you know, in the past, when I were to look up recipes featuring vegetables, vegetables were always treated like second-rate meat substitutes, right? It's always like, you know, you take out the meat, you take out the chicken or the beef, and then you put 
a bland piece of tofu in and you just cook it exactly the same way. But I think for me, the shift came when I moved to Melbourne and you know, there's a huge vegan and vegetarian crowd here. And so in the restaurants that I was working at, you know, chefs would conceptualize dishes from scratch and it's so tasty and you, you don't even miss the meat at all because there's no comparison there. Exactly. So that's my mission and aim for Singapore. Um, yes, people do find it very difficult because they're like, you don't even put the pelachan? Like, how, 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 how does it work? Like, you know, so I understand from, uh, and also what you need to consider is the palate perspectives. Um, because people are used to a much higher level of umami here, whereas that's not really the case in, in Melbourne, right? They're, if, say, for example, a, a, a laksa, you'll get the umami from the belachan, you'll get it from the prawn, you'll get it from just so much, so many factors, right? So you do need to keep that palate perspective in mind uh, because you're curating dishes for a particular audience and they're used to a certain kind of um, a palate or a certain kind of taste preferences. So you need to do a marriage of, you know, where you're bringing in this perspective as well as being able to envisage a dish right from scratch. But I think it's not like very difficult. And I, and I, that's my dream for the next few years that I do see that many more, uh, you know, restaurants and chefs are able to do exactly what you said that happens in Melbourne as well. Yeah. So, you know, how do you compensate for that umami that is naturally present in meat or, you know, dried seafood? What so there are a lot of vegetables that have umami, say, for example, cabbage, tomato, uh, onions, um, all of the shallots, all of these have umami. It's just that you have to learn to concentrate them. So that's where you need to re-engineer the dish to see how you can concentrate that umaminess uh, to bring that about. So it's not really impossible. And let's say, for example, I did a menu for a restaurant which was um, not able to, it's a halal restaurant which is not able to have a plant-based meat because it was not halal but it's a vegetarian or a vegan, uh, you know, restaurant. So for them, what I did is like, I played along with these ingredients, which um, where I concentrate the umaminess from these vegetables that also have umami. So it's really up to you as to like how you, but you obviously have to then deconstruct the dish and re-engineer it in a way, in a different manner to meet that kind of palate perspective. Yeah. When I was reading up about vegetarianism in India, it was very interesting to note that um, like the Jains do not eat um, garlic and onion. And that, that is so much flavor and so much um, umami, like what you said. Um, and it's very interesting to find out about some of the ingredients that I didn't know about my whole life. Like, uh, you know, how they would use black salt to mimic the flavor of eggs or asafoetida, things like that. I mean, if you look at like, for example, Just, the company that's making the plant-based egg, right? Uh, it's made with like mung bean, uh, the yellow mung bean has black salt. And these are things that actually are made in India. So there is a dish called chila, which is made with yellow mung bean, or, you know, you could use basin or your chickpea flour for it. Now where it's made like an, like a flat, like a, like a pancake, like an omelette. And so they've borrowed all this knowledge from this dish, um, including adding like black salt, which of course is something that's been done for generations across India uh, and created a new plant-based like egg replacement, right? So 
uh, that's that's the beauty of it, and that's that's uh, that comes to what I also do is I work with a lot of plant-based companies in Singapore, and I work with the food technologist to kind of create a lot of products. So I've worked with Karana, I've worked with um, you know a lot of them, uh, Nestle, Unilever, all of them, right? So the the idea is that you know to help them bring that science and this ancient knowledge of the kind of dishes do a marriage and come up with something new. So at least it's not so alien and it's not so only just tech savvy, but also has something natural in it, something which is uh, not going to really harm because we don't have any statistical or empirical evidence on like what happens to us if we go ahead and just keep eating these kind of things, right? Mm -hmm. So it really helps to bring that bridge, that gap, um, which is why like you like you know the more i also learn it's not like i know everything <laughs> the more i learn and the more i discover the more i find that it's more intriguing i i can't bring myself to to eat those things or to have them in my fridge even you know i i really want to learn about how to make vegetables delicious naturally and so i mean i've been looking a lot at indian food because it's such a huge source of inspiration whether it is the combination of ingredients the techniques and i think another thing that indians are so good at doing is layering of textures yes i was looking at street food videos of the charts and you would have so many different layers in the same dish which i think is makes it really satisfying as satisfying as meat because when you think about meat there are different textures in a single item like fried chicken you have the crispy skin then you have like the juicy interior and so i think that really satisfies people's need for complexity when it comes to texture yes and uh, one word that's synonymous to cuisines of india is complexity it's so complex i mean in terms of like we and even if you look at the desserts from india right there's actually so much of technique in all those dishes uh, even your charts and all that stuff. It's not something that, you know, you can just think about it and you just quickly do it. There is a lot of tech if you want to do it correctly. That uh, if you learn all those techniques, you feel like, uh, you know, this is wow. This is not easy to master, which is why you, you would have like, uh, typically in an Indian wedding in India, you would have a chart master who would be a chef who's dedicated to just the charts because his specialization is just that. Uh, you would have like a uh, halwai, that means like a guy who would only be specializing in the, the dessert or the sweets because that's uh, uh, almost like a, a culinary education in itself, right? Um, and that's something that, you know, I feel uh, and that's something that I feel that should start happening even in places like Singapore is like ha- these culinary institutes start having a course with Indian cuisines, you know, or cuisines from India, because uh, say, for example, even the desserts, right? Um, Just learning it is very, very difficult because nothing much is documented. Um, Nothing much is like, you know, you, you, it's all by based on like experience and you getting it right. Uh, There is no way that you would, they'll tell you that you have to fry it at 120 degrees Celsius or anything like that. Right. In fact, most of the desserts are just like ghee, sugar, and maybe one starch, like either a basin or it could be milk or something like that. So, uh, so there is a lot of technique in cuisines of India, and I would love to see those techniques being taught in different culinary schools, 
Um, and that would, I think, kind of change the landscape instead, you know, in the restaurants scene in Singapore, where actually you would be able to appreciate dishes in its true sense and understand that, you know, it as um, um, a cuisine that needs a lot of respect as well. Yeah, I love that you brought up um, desserts as a, as a point because I feel the Indian desserts are so unique. Um, I Just over Deepavali, I was trying to make different Indian sweets and it's just so different from what I was used to, you know, like the French desserts. It's Indian desserts, you know, it's all mainly on the stove top and it's just a few ingredients. The technique in itself, it's so different. I made a burfi and I failed <laughs> because oh, it was... No. I just didn't know don't what I said about it. Don't, don't, don't lose heart on that because, like I said, you know, they're, they're very minimalistic like ingredients, but it's all about technique and you do get it, you master it only over years. It's not something that you ma can master very, very quickly. Everything, all their snacks, all their sweets, everything is all just techniques. Yeah. And you know, in Tamil, they call it padam. That means like consistency. Everything is about consistency. You get that wrong, that's it. You, mm -hmm. you can't like, you can't do the dish very well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, when you look at modern Indian recipes, especially for desserts, there are a lot of shortcuts. Like, uh, I think traditionally you would make koya by, by stirring the milk for hours. But, you know, I think most recipes just call for milk powder or, or condensed milk or evaporated milk. So I think the flavor is kind of uh, lost along the way, right? Because there's no caramelization. Definitely. But if you go down to uh, the streets of India, where you would actually buy these streets, these sweets off the street, uh, they would be making it everything from scratch. Because from an economics point perspective, they cannot be buying milk powder and making sweets. Mm. Um, it's going to be prohibitive because milk is something that's a lot cheaper in, in India. So, I mean, all of that also plays a role and milk is in abundance. So, and it's supposed, and it's an ingredient that's there almost yeah. in all the dishes and which is, which is like, what should I say? The backbone of everything that's vegetarian, all dairy is. So, um, um, I mean, even the economics perspective that kind of changes in the restaurants in India. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think another thing that's interesting about veg uh, about desserts in India is the use of vegetables, which is so unique. Like you have carrot halwa, and you have um, okay. you would make peta, 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 peta um, out of vegetables like ash gourd, and I find that so interesting. Why do you think um, Indians revere vegetables so much to even use them in the desserts? So it's primarily because like things like a murabba or like a peta are all made with winter vegetables. So a peta is actually made with your winter melon. And if you see in China also, they have the winter melon candy. candy. It's very similar to that, except I, I think um, uh, the process of making it is slightly different. Um, whereas in a peta, you kind of like boil it and then you... Um, boil it with this uh, lime or calcium, um, forgetting the hydroxide or something like that. So basically, you kind of what it does it it makes the outside firmer, but inside it remains juicy and cooked. And then you kind of cook it in a in a in a sugar syrup. Uh, but I think the idea has always been to um, primarily most of the deserts are either fruits or vegetables. Um, you have your uh, dairy 
and or you have the flowers like you know you could have like a rice flower your uh, ap flower or you could have basin there are a lot of desserts so i think the 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 inclusion of vegetables is something that like just like pickling it's like to give long longevity to vegetables as well and most of these you see if you see are done during the winter months it's mostly the winter vegetables that are used in for these i mean you can't eat it during summer summer but then at least you can prolong it that even after the season is ended you can because a halwa is something that preserves very well um, in households where you can keep in the fridge for long enough that is not eaten up <laughs> yeah definitely like desserts is a way of preserving vegetables that's so good what what do you aim to see a uh, change in the vegetarian space i definitely would be very happy to see many more restaurants and that's something that i am seeing already because i do not just pop ups but i also do a lot of menu consulting and stuff like that and do see a lot of inquiries so it's great to see the traction uh, the interest where you are not necessarily reaching out to people but people are reaching out to you um, and that you can contribute in a very very positive way um, uh, be it the restaurant scenes where i foresee that a lot more restaurants will start having vegetarian menus um there will be an uptake of plant based meat but at the same time i think there will be a surge in demand for people who want to just eat clean and want to eat like even dishes um which are just celebrating vegetables or you know even fruits um i do foresee that uh you know there is a lot of interest that's already happening um even from a cooking show perspective the one i'm doing right now the unsamayal arel where i'm a judge so there is a lot of interest from that segment as well so it's not like just the demand and supply equally is like quite interested in this segment so i do see a lot many more things happening lot of classes um lot of shows lot of restaurants taking up this and of course a lot of companies trying to get into this space yeah definitely i i feel that it's so wonderful that everyone is normalizing this diet or this lifestyle because i remember when i was working as a chef you know staff meals were a big thing and we had this girl from india who was vegetarian and no one wanted to cook when she was around <laughs> yeah and i can so understand that because when i go for my pop ups and there's a staff meal i will usually say that i'll make the staff meal because i know they'll all be like scratching their heads that oh my god now what do we make for her what is she going to eat and they throughout the day they'll keep asking so you eat this huh you are okay with this you're not okay with that so you know usually I, my standard operating procedure is like don't worry about me either i will not eat or i will make the staff meal but i i completely and it has not changed much yeah and i think it's because you know people are so used to using meat or seafood as a crutch for flavor right so the moment you take those things away it's like how do you make food delicious again you know <laughs> that's something actually is a difference that i explain to people between uh dishes that are when you envisage a dish in singapore for a singapore audience and when you envisage a dish for the indian audience in india um and classic example being the chicken rice right in chicken rice chicken is the primary flavor right your rice has the chicken flavor the chicken has the chicken flavor the stock has the chicken flavor because it's a celebration of the chicken whereas in india the first thing that you would do for any meat dish is dumb down the meatiness of the meat or the other meat flavor 
So whether it's a fish, whether it's a chicken or whatever, mutton or whatever, the first thing they'll do is marinate it. Oh, they will put lemon, they will put like spices and all the stuff to dumb down so that a fish doesn't smell fishy. A chicken doesn't smell like a chicken, right? So it's a completely different approach from a cuisine perspective. Uh, and therefore, I understand and appreciate that how difficult it can be because here, the primary flavor is the meat. So if I'm asked to make a dish without the meat, then I don't know what to do. Whereas in India, that's not the case. The first thing they do with meat is dumb it down. Right. And then it's swimming in either a gravy or like has one like spices or something like that to it, which uh, kind of defines the dish. Right. So it's not the meat that is like defining the dish in India. It's the spices or the gravy or whatever else that is defining the dish. Whereas in a lot of the Southeast Asian cuisines, as well as in Singapore, it is the meat that's defining the dish. So it's, I think, the approach of how the dish is. And once you understand that, uh, then you can re-engineer it to kind of have similar flavors, textures, um, but not necessarily have the meat kind of hero it. Yeah, I love that so much. I never really thought of it that way. Um, and I think that is one of the biggest barriers, um, you know, why Singaporeans at first, or, you know, the older generation of Singaporeans find it so difficult to accept yeah. a more plant-based diet because they feel like it's losing their heritage, right? That's very true. But it's, it's really not a, a fact of like, you know, they can't do it. I don't know why they don't do it. It's because, you know, their cuisine is built around different principles. And one needs to appreciate that. Uh, one, if you appreciate that, then you will have an understanding, which yeah. is why I think, um, you know, you would have people that would say like, you know, I'm very good with certain kind of dishes. I'm very good with certain kind of dishes that are not with these kind of things. So, I mean, I guess it, it all really depends on a lot of factors. Yeah, so true. I learned so much from you. You know, you're such an inspiration. I love your approach to vegetables. And it's definitely going to inspire me to cook more plants or vegetables. I love watching what you do on your Instagram stories. Uh, in fact, I must tell you that when I'm approaching a menu, and I'm looking for ideas, I most often than not actually look, look through and like, you know, look at your library of stuff that you have. Uh, because, you know, I mean, a education in terms of the dish, but also, uh, I love listening to this anecdotes that you drop in where you are absolutely a food nerd. There's no doubt about that. But then, you know, the way you kind of say things like, you know, you've read something somewhere and therefore this and but you're going to do this. I think those become very, very interesting parts of your recipe. So please do continue doing what you're doing. And you're oh, doing a fabulous you. job. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the podcast and for speaking with me. It was such an honor. Likewise, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you so much for this. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Samia Venkatesan, who is the founder of Kachil Kitchen. Food media tends to focus on Singapore's best hits like chicken rice or laksa and fails to capture the diversity of Singaporean food. By documenting overlooked recipes, Singapore Noodle seeks to share about Singapore's rich food culture with you. If you'd like to support the work that we do, sign up to be a member on our website, sgpnoodles.com. You'll get access to all of the recipes on the site and participate in our monthly cook-alongs. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.